0: We're now going to move into a time of teaching, and as we do that, we always read from the Bible because it is our source of life, our source of authority. This is God's Word to us, and if you are not just a listener but a follower, uh, that helps you to process. Can you turn to Jeremiah chapter 14 with me, please? Jeremiah is a tough book, and so the benefit of going through it as a congregation helps you to read it and to understand it. So we're not preaching on every single verse in this book. We've selected certain parts as we move through it, but we are encouraging you in the in-between to read from the, the book. So if last week we were preaching on chapter 12 and this week we're on 14, well, it makes sense to read 12, 13, and 14 over the week. And it's an easy way to read what's quite a long and difficult book. This morning we're going to read chapter 14, the first 10 verses. Listen now for the word of God. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, her cities languish. They wail for the land, a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled. Dismayed and despaired, they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed, they cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. While donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals, their eyes fail for lack of food. Although our sin testify our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. For we have often rebelled, we have sinned against you, you who are the hope of Israel. It's savior in times of distress. Why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about his people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. It's a heavy book, isn't it? It's a heavy book. It's a reason people tend to camp out in the Gospels. It's a heavy book. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we love you. And we love your word. And we say that right at the start of today because we recognize some parts of the Bible, your word given to us, is hard for us to understand. And yet we thank you that you've given us not only the book, but the author as well. We thank you that your spirit is here among us now. So speak, Lord. Bring your word to life in every mind and every heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're reading a book with the staff team. Sometimes we talk about Pete Gregg. In church, the guy that sort of was instrumental in starting the 24-7 prayer movement, he's written a number of books. uh, His latest one, How to Hear God's Voice, we're reading it as a staff team. Some of you may be familiar with it, may have bought it already. But in that book, he tells a story of years and years ago, when the 24-7 movement was sort of taking off, they had had sent a little mission team to Ibiza, you know, Party Island. You know where it is, yeah? Yeah okay, some of you are going there this summer, Um, who knows, Uh, sent a little mission team to Ibiza to to help shine God's light in what has been considered for a number of years one of the, the, the darkest and most hedonistic places in Europe. And the team was there ministering faithfully. But when they were there and when Pete and a few others were out visiting, it was in the midst of one of the worst droughts the island had ever seen. And they were asked, could, as they were praying, could they pray for rain for the island? So they're in, in the prayer room as a group, just kind of like we do on a Wednesday. We come and pray together. Some of you are part of that. would love more if you to be part of that. They, they were just in, in a room praying. There was nothing fancy about it. And they were praying for for rain. They were praying for rain for the island. And, and, And Pete says, in his own words, I have to admit, I didn't have a lot of faith. Of all the things going on in the world, was God going to answer a prayer about sending rain? And he said, you know, they all said amen. They were going their own ways. He came out of the room, got into the car that he'd rented, sat down, and before he'd started the engine, there was spits on the windscreen. And he started the engine, put the wipers on, and before he had got too far, it was chucking it down, as they would say here in Belfast. That was the start of the worst rainstorm the island had seen since 1976. Now, if you're a bit cynical, I'm a bit cynical. If you're a bit cynical, you could say, coincidence, coincidence. Pretty cool coincidence, but coincidence. And Pete in the book says he was thinking coincidence until his phone beeped just at that moment. There was a text came in from a prayer room in St. Petersburg in Russia where a guy called Vanya had been praying and had felt compelled to send a Bible verse to Pete. What was the Bible verse? The Bible verse was 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you know your Bible, as all good Origin people do, you'll know automatically without me having to tell you, I'll tell you anyway, will I? It was Elijah kneeling down in the midst of one of the worst droughts the country had ever seen and praying for rain and then sending his servant to look out over the valley to a blue sky. And he came back and said, no, go and check again. Go and check again. And there was a cloud. And then the sky changed color and the heavens opened and there was rain. It's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Like it's, it's kind of crazy. Be honest. It's kind of a weird story. Except in Jeremiah 14, I think that's what we're seeing. The ground is cracked and dry. They're living through one of the worst droughts the nation of Judah has seen people are dying of thirst the servants are going to the cisterns to get water and coming back with empty bowls and basins because the rivers have run dry we're told that the the deer's are abandoning their young because they're not able to there's no rain nourishing grass for them to eat so their milk has dried up and they can't feed their own kids we're told the wild donkeys on the mountainsides are panting like jackals. Their, their, their tongues are so parched because there's no rain. And Jeremiah is crying out to God to send rain. And we're told that this lack of rain is a sign of God's judgment on the people because of their unfaithfulness and their wickedness. And Jeremiah cries out for God to intervene and to send rain. And it seems like a strange story, but it's not what Elijah was doing in 1 Kings 18, crying out to God to open the heavens and to send rain. And then you move into the New Testament, you see Jesus in the boat with his disciples in the midst of one of the worst storms these seasoned fishermen have ever seen. They're fearing for their lives. Jesus is just kicking back, snoozing in the back of the boat. And they wake him and he stands up and he says, calm, be still. And the storm stops. What are we in the 21st century Belfast meant to do with stories like that? Where there's an expectation that God controls the weather. Now, maybe I think you've got more faith than I have because I've lost count of the number of times you have come to me and said, you know, our wedding on Saturday, can you pray there's no rain? Are that the funeral that's happening? Can you pray there's no rain? what's our expectation of that prayer? Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of belief? See, it's interesting, in, in much of the ancient world and in today's global south, particularly if you work in agriculture, there is a belief that the God or, or, the, God, God or the gods are intimately involved in every aspect of the world, including weather patterns and if rain didn't come, much of the world then, and, and to be fair, much of the world today sees that as a sign that God is angry with the people for some reason, and they have to offer some kind of sacrifice. Deuteronomy chapter 11, I think I have it on the screen there, yeah. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then... I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your corn new wine and olive oil. We, we build our church liturgy and calendar around a harvest service on the second weekend in October every year. And yet we hold that level of faith in tension with the fact that we've lived through the Enlightenment. That we are post-enlightenment thinkers. We have scientific understanding. We understand about meteorological weather patterns. We've got Barabest. We've got the BBC weather app on our phones. It's going to rain at 2 o'clock. There's a 43% chance of it. We understand how climate works. And for most people in a post-enlightenment, high-technology environment that we live in, we have relegated God from that space. Different people's approaches are different. Some people are atheists. They just don't believe in God at all. It's easy for them. Some people are what is called a deist. That means they believe that God created the world and created Gravity and weather patterns and scientific rules of, and all of those things. And then he stepped back and took his hands off it and is no longer involved in the world. Yes, there was a God and there probably still is a God, but he's not actually involved in any aspect of how the world works anymore. And then some people, I don't know if there's a better name for this, but the, the kind of colloquial term is they believe in a God of the gaps where science has revealed certain things about how the world works, including weather patterns. So we don't actually need God to explain those things, but we still need God for things like salvation, and we still need God for things like praying for help when things go wrong or before that exam or when somebody gets sick. So we relegate God out of certain places, but we plug him into the gaps where we don't understand or, or we need him to be, where suits us. But what if Jeremiah might actually be right when he says in verse 9 in chapter 10, you with me? You are among us, Lord. You are among us, Lord. You are among us, Lord. What if God was and still is the creator and the sustainer of the the universe, not just of a group of people, but actually with with every part of the world and the creation and the universe around us? What if he, (coughs) excuse me, What if he remains intimately involved in the story, not just of his people, but of all of his creation? Matthew 5, 45 tells us that he sends the rain on the fields of the just and the unjust. He sends the rains. Now, what I'm not saying is that every time there's a drought that is definitively a sign of God's judgment. Do not hear that. That's not what I'm saying. You can draw your own conclusions about that. But I do think it is fascinating that as we live through one of the the greatest climate crises that the world has seen. Maybe not the worst one, but one of the worst climate crisis in the history of our planet that the world's answer is Babel-like to trust in human ingenuity and our own powers and scientific breakthrough and reason to fix it. If we can just do X, Y, and Z, we'll fix it ourselves. Now, I think we do need to Turn to scientists and trust what they're saying. I think we do need to look at renewable forms of energy and be willing to make all kinds of changes that are being brought to us by the best minds on the planet. But what if we also need to turn to God in repentance? What if there's something going on here where God is calling His people to turn to Him in prayer and say, "Do you know what, God? We're not relegating You out of this space." but we are looking to you as the God of creation. And we are going to do the best with what we have, but but we recognize this problem is bigger than us and actually we need you in this space, in this moment. What if this is a time for the church to stand up and be the church? What does it mean to have a level of faith that can pray for rain when there's no rain? To trust God in those moments. Now, the astute among you will say, this is interesting, but that's not primarily what this passage is about, and you're correct. This passage is not primarily a story about weather, but it would have been too easy to read over it and not address that. This text is primarily a story about faith and faithlessness. It is primarily the story about a nation of people who are not trusting God and not following God and are doing whatever they want to do themselves. And one person, the prophet Jeremiah, who is standing faithful among the faithless, one person who has hope amongst the hopeless. That's what this passage is about. Not primarily about weather, but about hope in hopeless situations. My dad is, is fantastic. He's taught me most of what I know, if I'm honest. Um, he's just a phenomenal role model. One of the things, he's, he's, he's brilliant with his hands. He's, he, he can turn his hands to anything. He can fix anything. He hates to throw anything Right? He'll, he'll always have a go at fixing it. Are you like that? Do you know anybody like that? Washing machines broke? I, I could fix that. We'll buy you? No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll fix that, we'll fix that. You with me? Do you anyone like that? Dad can actually do it though. The one place it lets him down, it's, it's yeah, it's his Achilles heel. It's his mobile phone or his laptop. Because this um, kind of post-war mentality of, I could fix that, don't throw anything out, let's, let's fix it. It doesn't work with with computers and phones, does it? It doesn't work with computers and phones because what they do is they, they send you a software update that you download and your phone starts to work better and then send another software up that you download your phone works better. They send you another one and then there's a few glitches and things start to slow down and then after a while you try to download the latest software update and your phone can't cope with it and either crashes or tells you you can't download this update and you try to go back to the way it was. You can't go back to the way it was and the only option is to buy a new phone or a new computer. Are you with me? It's annoying isn't it? See if you're wired like my dad it is horrendous. You know, and it takes weeks of phone calls to say, you know, my phone's not working. You need to buy a new phone, Dad. No, no, no. You need to buy a new phone. There's only so many software updates you can take before you need to change the hardware. There's only so many software updates you can take before you need to change the hardware. Why do I tell you that story? Apart from the fact that my dad's amazing, why do I tell you that story? I think in this moment, in the story of the people of Judah, God has been trying to send software update after software update after software update, and it's just got to a point where it's no longer computing, and there's about to be a hardware change. In fact, maybe there needs to be a hardware change. You see, the weather, the drought they're living through is only part of the problem. We've been talking about this for the past number of weeks. The the, the bigger part of the problem is that they have been unfaithful to God for so long. And and, Jeremiah is testifying to that even in this passage. Our sins are great. Our unfaithfulness is great as a nation, as a people. And the consequence of that The judgment of that is that the Babylonian nation, the world superpower who is set on world domination, is riding through the Middle East, conquering, 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 and Judah is next in its sight. And Jeremiah knows that, that this is coming. And he sees the drought not as simply a, a, a different problem, but as a, a, an escalation of the same problem. Because now his people are so weak that even when the Babylonians come, they're going to be so weak they can't even fight. They can't even fight. The drought has weakened his people. The writing is on the wall. The, there's an inevitability of the ends of his kingdom of his way of life, of of the politics that he's known, of of the way of practicing his faith and going to the temple with with the people that he knows. All of this is going to change because his people are going to be conquered and carried off into exile. Software update after software update has fallen on deaf ears and now there's about to be a hardware change. The world as he knows it is about to change completely. Completely the world as his nation know it is about to change completely and they're about to be carried into a, a liminal space a place where nothing is certain where everything feels new where there's grief of what they've lost and uncertainty of what it's going to be like they're about to be brought into this liminal space i've been reading a book at the minute by a guy called Mark Sayers. It's called A Non-Anxious Presence. I just love that title. A Non-Anxious Presence. And Sayers in the book says this. He's talking about this moment in history in which we live in the West. His my argument is that we are living through more than a software update or a downloading of new ideas. Instead, we are living through a hardware change. The internet, as we have known it, is morphing into what's been called the metaverse, and none of us actually know what that means or the implications of it. Energy sources that have powered the last century of growth are being replaced, and we're still not totally sure how that's going to work. The vision of globalization that the global order has been built around is being rethought, becoming increasingly polarized. Our model of economics is entering uncharted waters. Yesterday, I spent two pounds a liter on diesel. The geopolitical order is shifting towards the Indo-Pacific. New technology is changing politics as Facebook and Twitter control what we think and how we think it and what we see and how we process it. Gender is becoming fluid. The Western church is in free fall and the pandemic that we have all lived through has accelerated all of this. Nothing is certain. As we move into this liminal space, and I get that's heavy, guys. I get there's a lot to process in that. But as we move into this liminal space, we need to be honest. The world and Northern Ireland and Belfast is changing. Here's a question for you to ponder. We talked about those first few months of the pandemic being like an exile, didn't we, when we couldn't come to church and we couldn't see family? What if that was actually the preamble to the exile into which we are now stepping? A place where everything that has been certain for us, that has framed our way of life up to this point, is changing. What if these next few years of uncertainty are going to be an exile? I want to suggest just a couple of things before we come to this table. Jeremiah gives us these, and I I think they're really helpful as we stand at the edge of a liminal space, the edge of an uncertain space, not knowing what the future will be like for our world, for our country, for our city, and what it's going to be like to be church and Jesus followers in that space. I think there's some things we can learn here. The first one is, I think we need to be a people of hope. We need to be a people of hope. There's going to be so much change happening around us. Fear is tangible at the minute. Have you noticed that? Fear is tangible. We need to be a people of hope in the midst of that. Jeremiah births a term here in this passage that he uses then throughout the rest of his book, that the Apostle Paul picks up in his writings. He says, O hope of Israel. Oh hope of Israel. And hope in most of the older translations of the Bible comes with a capital H, even though it's in the middle of the sentence. Why? Because hope that Jeremiah is talking about, the hope that Paul is talking about, is not primarily a set of beliefs or, or principles to be understood, or propositions, or sets of belief. Hope is a person, and that person has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. As we move into this liminal space, as potentially so much of our world changes, one thing remains a constant. Maybe others will as well, but I can say with certainty from this platform, one thing remains a constant. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. He will not change. That he came into this world to rescue and to redeem and to restore and to rebuild. And he did it by giving his life on a cross. And three days later, by being raised from the dead. And in that moment, God started to do a new thing. Rescuing his people from sin. Redeeming them into his family. Restoring our purpose as children of God that had been lost in the fall and rebuilding the world as he releases his kingdom in our midst that will be brought to completion one day when Jesus returns. We are called to be a people of hope. And we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you know, and and, and tangibly, tangibly, the Apostle Paul In one of his most quoted Sunday school lessons, you know, there's certain parts of Paul's writings that we always teach our kids in Sunday school. One is the armor of God. Do you know that? We don't teach all the stuff, but we, we love to teach the armor of God. Listen to this here. He's talking about spiritual warfare, he's talking about under attack from culture and from the enemy, he's talking about everything changing, and he's talking about the purpose of God's people in that space, in that moment. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your, and pay attention to this word, stand. That you may take your stand against the devil and his schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world and its heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand. Firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In all of this, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We focus on all the things that we're meant to put on, but what we're meant to do with them, we're meant to stand. Maybe, guys, in the midst of a changing world, we're meant to do what Jeremiah does, humbly, faithfully, full of grace, full of hope, simply to stand as a non-anxious presence with our eyes on Jesus, knowing that whatever's going on in the world, it's, it's, it's confusing and disorientating. But Jesus, you are the same, and we will trust you and the people around us, even who don't know you need us, to be a people who stand Humbly, gently, faithfully trusting Jesus. Be a people of hope. Be a people who carry hope. Jeremiah says, You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. If our God is still present and still active in this changing cultural moment, then we as a people Bear his name. We as a people are to reflect the character and the work of God through not just our attitudes, but our lives. We are to reflect hope because God is a God of hope to the least and the lost and the lonely in the world at the minute. And as a church, I want to encourage us because I think we're doing this. I think our trajectory is right. Since the pandemic started, we started a food bank in partnership with Dundonald. And we have fed, we think, but well, we don't think we know, 1,500 people since the pandemic started. We've provided meals for people in our community, almost 1,000 meals for people in our community. We have released through this place, some into our city and some around the world, 400,000 pounds since the pandemic started. Isn't that incredible, to bring life and hope to other people? We have loved our neighbors. We have pastored those who are hurting. We have stood with the grieving. We are trying to be a church that releases the hope of God into the world around us. Let me share a story with you Um, that's just wonderful. We have started a new ministry for the summer called International Tea House. We meet in our cafe. There's about 16 um, families who have come into the country here as refugees who we have become connected with, and we invite them to come along, women and children and some men, simply to love them, to talk to them, to get to know them, to let them get to know us. Most of them are Muslims. There's a language barrier. There's a cultural barrier. But on Thursday night, I was down, and some of the men We're asking, could they see round? We brought them into the church. They really liked the seats. Thought they were really comfortable. We were sitting chatting with them and between broken English and Google Translate, one of them who had almost no English was speaking to the one who had a bit more English and he said to us, he said, love feels tangible when you come into this place. Love feels tangible when you come into this place. We feel loved. It feels tangible. It feels real. Not just a word or an emotion, but it feels real, substantive. And in that moment, we had the opportunity to talk about a God who loves his people so much that he came amongst us in Jesus. A God who opens his arms and welcomes strangers to become family. We are a people who bear God's name, a people who carry hope. And then finally, and we finish with this as we come to the table, we are to be a people who invite others to hope. Today, we have welcomed 13 new people into full Communicant membership, all of whom who have become Christians, who have given their life to Jesus. Some recently and some years ago, But I've taken this step today and stood on the stage and said, I believe Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. God is still building His church in the midst of a changing world. God is still building His church. We, as His people, are called to do more than believe. More than believe. We as his people are called to do more than help people who are struggling. We are called to do more than that. We as God's people are called to point others to Jesus. That the hope that we have in Christ, we are called to help other people discover that Jesus is real and that they need to know his love and his forgiveness in their lives. That is essential. Jeremiah believes that. We see that in this passage. You are right at the end where we're reading those verses, he knows his people are sinful and he knows that they are unrepentant and he knows that they are continuing down this track. But, but he looks to God and he cries out to God and says, God, these people, they need you. They need your mercy. You know, they're not going to turn to you. Please, for, for, for the, your sake, won't you rescue them? And we'll look more at what happens in the weeks to come. My point is that we, as God's people, as we stand in hope, as we carry hope to others, we are to point people to a God who is hope, the one who will rescue and redeem and save them. We are to point people to Jesus, because in the midst of a changing world, He is their only hope. And my question, maybe it's not a question. What does it look like? It is a question. What does it look like to have faith like Jeremiah has? When the situation looks hopeless, what does it look like to still believe that God can rescue and redeem? Maybe some of you have given up praying for people. Maybe some of you have been knocked back because you've invited someone to an Alpha course so many times and they just said no and now it feels like you're just doing their head in. Maybe you have parents who don't believe who've walked away from church. Maybe you have kids who have grown up in this place but have walked away. I think the faith that Jeremiah has To be a person of hope, calling others to hope is a gift from God. That level of faith is a gift from God. And I think as we step into this changing world over these next weeks and months and years, we need a supernatural level of faith to stand, to love and help and serve but to believe that God can rescue and redeem the people around us. And so as I invite the band to come on stage, that's the prayer I simply want to pray, or some of the band to come on stage at this moment. Let's take a moment and pray. God, you are the hope of Israel. And you are the hope of Belfast. The hope of Orby, The hope of the Castlereagh Road. God, you are the hope of Clarewoods. Hope of Klondorf. God, you are the hope of the people in the place where we work. God, you are the hope of the people that we were with last night. God, you're the hope of the people who sit around our dinner table this afternoon. God, you are among us by your Spirit welcoming us into that deeper walk with you, welcoming us into that deeper place of trust with you. I pray, Holy Spirit, won't you move now? We are told that one of the spiritual gifts that you release amongst your people is faith. Faith to look to the heavens and believe that God can send rain. Faith to look at a nation that has trajectory away from you, God, and to believe that you can intervene and call a nation back to you. Faith to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of some of the most complex change this world has seen, certainly in the last 80, 70, 80 years. Faith to keep believing and keep praying that the baptismal promises that you made God over people that we love can still come true. And so I pray, Father, allow your Spirit to release that level of faith in this room, in the lives of these people today. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, won't you search us? Won't you let us know that this is the place where forgiveness and mercy are found? We're remembered. That as we break this bread and share this wine, we are meeting with the one father who give his life for the sinful and for the broken and for the not good enoughs for the not knowledgeable enoughs for the not perfect enoughs for the not spiritual enoughs jesus you said that you came as a doctor to the sick you came to bind up the hearts that are broken You came to welcome the sinful to sit at your table and to find mercy and to find forgiveness. And so in a moment of prayerful, songful meditation, we remember your great love, Lord, and we recommit our lives to you.